You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. What's up, Aviation Nerdation, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Forever on the Fly podcast, your bi-weekly dose of aviation inspiration, education, and entertainment. My name is Diane Dollar, and Jose is back. He is here, back with us. Uh, thank you, Senorita. So happy to be back. Yeah, we miss, miss your face. We miss my face. Oh, <laughs> we missed your face too. I mean, we we couldn't figure out the stupid technical difficulties. Freaking internet. No man. So I know my internet dumb. Tell you what, T-Mobile's not the way to go, guys. Just kidding. <laughs> I was about to say you still use T-Mobile. <laughs> No, I'm just messing with you. Awesome. <laughs> Verizon, man. Verizon's where it's at. Yeah, Spectrum let me down. Oh. No idea. Womp, womp. Womp, womp, womp. Man, well, yeah. we really missed you, and we are so happy that you're back. And are you ready to help me get these guys hooked on aviation? aviation. Dang, that was good hooked on aviation. We did a, <laughs> we did a good job there. Yeah, that's pretty legit. Legit, too legit to quit. Well, guess what? <laughs> what happened? I passed my multi-engine check, Brad. What? Congratulations, Senorita. Thank you. Yeah. So tell me about it. What? Uh, what was it all? What was it all like? Tell us a little bit about it. Oh man. Well, yeah. So I did it in a Piper Seneca. I don't know if you've ever flown one of those before, but no, I haven't. Dang, that thing was heavy. <laughs> I swear yeah. to God, I'm happy I haven't been skipping arm day. I've never had to flare with both hands before. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that elevator man. But it it was really good. The check ride went really well. I had to fly up to Greenville, uh, South Carolina, to do my check ride. I love the DP. He was so great. His name was Brent. And he was fair, firm, friendly, all the all the good things that you look for in a DPE. And yeah. uh, it was a little windy that day. You know, of course, I swear to God, it is like a check ride thing where you go your entire training being like calm winds, or if they are winds, they're straight down the pipe. And then day of your check ride, boom, gusting 19 outside with a straight up crosswind, yeah, <laughs> moderate yeah, yeah. or greater turbulence. It was kind of windy that day, but you know. Compared to your other check rides, like all the ones that you've taken throughout your you know, career, where would it stack? The difficulty level of it? Oh, or, I see. Yeah. I mean, I feel like at this point, I've... I've done a lot of check rides. I still got the nervous jitters, like the check ride jitters. They still happen. I was still really nervous, and even though I knew I was I was ready. I had just been struggling with the short field landings. For some reason, they were very difficult for me. It was hard for me to get the sight picture right. Mm-hmm. I, I managed. I mean, that was the only one that I was kind of having like real trouble with. And I was expecting to be done because everyone's like, oh, it only takes five to seven hours to finish your multi-engine. But I think that's somebody who flies airplanes on a regular basis, maybe. But someone like me, I don't really fly fixed wing all that much. I I don't have very many hours in fixed wing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was being really hard on myself because I thought, you know, I should be done by now. I was at like hour eight, hour nine. I'm like, man... I still don't feel like I'm completely ready. So I was being really hard on myself for having to take longer than what people were saying were the average. But I think going from being a helicopter pilot and transitioning to a multi-engine heavier aircraft, 
I definitely had to be patient with myself. You know, I started noticing negative thought patterns like, man, I just, maybe I'm just not cut out for this kind of flying. I don't really like it. I'm not having fun. I know we had a conversation. Remember I called you, I called you, I was struggling with it. I was like, man, I just like, don't know if this is for me. Like I'm not really having fun because I feel like I'm not good at it. Yeah. But once, once it clicked, right. You know, you have to be patient with fixed wing when in these heavier aircraft, you have to be a lot more patient because with helicopters, we are so used to immediate satisfaction of the aircraft doing being responsive and doing what we want it to do immediately. But with a heavier airplane, you kind of have to like put in the input and wait for it to do what you're asking it to do. And for me, it was hard for me to like build that patience up to be like, no, I want you to come now. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 No, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy you stuck with the thing, Rita. Yeah, I'm I'm happy too. And you're not the only one that did it in 10 hours. I did it in 10 hours. Yeah, okay. So it seems like that's more of the average for someone who maybe doesn't, who doesn't fly. Have as much fixed wing. Have as much fixed wing. Yeah, that was the struggle. But anyways, enough about that. We also have a couple announcements. Well, one, Jose is going to be able to get a, a G650 type rating paid for by the GI Bill. That's good news. Uh, no, not by the GI Bill, by a private uh, owner. Oh, I yeah. thought it was the GI. I thought you no. said that you were getting it paid for by the GI Bill. No, oh my different god! Type, different type rating for the GI Bill, but yeah, it's going to be a private owner. So cross my fingers. Mm-hmm. That should be epic. And yeah, I can't wait for that. Also coming up, we have Dare to Dream Dallas coming up in the spring, and we're seeking sponsors, contributors. If you guys want to donate to our next big event or attend or volunteer, go to our website, www.foreveronthefly.com, and check, uh, check that out under Dare to Dream Dallas. You can also email us if you have ideas for the event at diane at foreveronthefly.com. That's diane at foreveronthefly.com. Our next guest goes way back with Jose and I. He's an original gangsta OG helicopter pilot. He was both Jose and I's lead pilot over at Papillon and has since then worked as chief pilot of a Grand Canyon tour company and currently flies the AW109 out of Astoria, Oregon, famous for, you know, the Goonies, (laughs) everyone's favorite movie if you're cool. (laughs) He flies in support of transporting Columbia River bar boat captains, otherwise known as bar pilots, to incoming cargo ships. I'm so excited for him to share his experience. It's a very niche part of the industry, not a lot of them in the world. So here he is to talk about what he does on the day-to-day, some of the challenges that are involved in what he does. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I'm going to go over some of the things that I learned, the requirements from doing my first international ferry flight. Mike Tomlinson. Real live human on the line when the ship is moving violently next to you with nothing else to look at, but the moving ship is uh, intense. Hey, I'm Mike Tomlinson and I'm forever on the fly. <laughs> What's up? How you guys doing? Happy Good, Thanksgiving, you guys. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you guys. So much to be thankful for. We're so happy that you could join us. Thanks for coming on on a, on a Thanksgiving day. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you're, dude, you're a trooper, homie. Yeah. No worries, man. I, uh, You know, my kid's upstairs watching uh, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, and uh, my wife's at work. She's working until 9 p.m. tonight, so uh-huh. it's just... Uh, 
Did just, you, we're gonna go over to you, a friend's house later and chow down, but cool. Oh man, relaxed. that's awesome. Yeah, nice yeah, yeah. Situation over here. Your wife works in the hospital, doesn't she? She's a yep. yeah, nurse, she I believe. Yeah, ER. yeah. Yep. ER nurse. Mm. Which is uh, a a harder job than being a helicopter pilot. (laughs) (laughs) Seems to be a good combination. We know a lot of like helicopter nurse, helicopter pilot nurse combos seems to work pretty well, pretty flexible job and they're in high demand. So if you have to move. So anyone out there in the dating pool (laughs) looking for a spouse. It's true. It's true. And you don't want to uh, be uh, ailed by the, the, um, what is that? AIDS, aviation-induced divorce syndrome. Exactly. <laughs> Got to exactly. find someone who can move. Don't with fall you. victim. Don't fall victim. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the vaccination for AIDS is, uh, you know, marrying a nurse. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh my god. Well, that... uh, yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for coming on, amigo. You know, oh, dope. thanks for having me. I feel like you guys have had all these like celebrities, fighter jet pilots, and famous people. I'm like. I it's just I don't me. Know, man. No, I'm gonna tell you something. <laughs> yeah, you got some. You got some big cojones in what you do. We're gonna talk, <laughs> We're about, gonna talk that. about that. We're gonna talk about that. <laughs> We're. I'm really excited to kind of get the scoop on on what you guys do up there. Well, first, let's talk a little bit about who you are, where you you know, where you grew up, um, what inspired you to become a helicopter pilot. What were you doing before? What are you doing now? And go. <laughs> oh. Oh, all right. That was like six questions. My name is Mike from Detroit. If you ever get a chance to go there, uh, don't. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Before this, I was uh, a mountaineering guide. I worked as a climbing guide for 10 years. And uh, before that, I was a bum and waiting tables and digging ditches and other fun things. Uh, Let's see. What else? Where oh, were you? Where you how did I get into helicopters? Well, where were you uh, a mountain guide? Uh, all over. I started off in Alaska and I went back and forth from Alaska to New Zealand and to Chile. And um, I ended up uh, here uh, close by climbing Mount Rainier for three seasons. And that's where I sort of got the itch again to go get a real job and <laughs> uh, took on a big ass scary loan. And here we are. Did he I can't remember? Did he go with Hillsboro Aviation? Yes. Is that yeah, that's who you went with, right? It was you and Falk. Man. Yeah, yeah. Falk and I. I mean, there's yeah. a bunch of people that we worked with in the canyon that uh yeah, yeah. came out of Hillsboro. Oh, oh sweet. I was super nervous end. about spending that money, you know, getting uh-huh. that that big loan. I, I was terrified of of uh of failing at it. I mean, it's pretty good motivation, you know, when you're 80 grand in the hole. Man, I'm going to get up on time today. Yeah. <laughs> Don't um, mess this up. <laughs> when, when, my, uh, when my flight instructor says, show up, I'm going to be there. I'm going to study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I'll tell you what, though. That is a little extra motivation than, I mean, don't get me wrong. The GI Bill is still our money paying for it. And we're, we're utilizing yeah, that money that's it. available to us. But I still don't feel like I had the same kick in the pants as somebody who took out a big, scary loan. Uh, I mean, I still, you know, I still did my stuff. <laughs> I still showed up, but, you know, because mm. I was motivated to get it done. But mm. I definitely had some GI Bill students who are not as motivated. But I'm like, man, if you were paying out of pocket, I bet you would feel a little bit differently. <laughs> I think so. Sure. Yeah. I, was a, I was like a half breed. 
I had like half GI bill, half, uh, half of my own money. So I ended up like paying a little over 40 grand, but that was enough for me to be like, well, don't be a bag. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for sure man i was psyched about about flying helicopters or, or, or flying planes way earlier too when i was living in new zealand and working on the uh uh in the southern alps down there we would fly around a lot you know we'd fly you know uh on and off of the glaciers into huts and, and whatever and uh i'm like damn this is sweet like here i'm like wet and cold and tired and i got <laughs> tourists and you know jumping the helicopter and dude's just chilling warm and dry he's like playing the video game all the way back i'm like oh man that's what i want to do yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah it took me it took me a while i started making moves i actually got in contact with silver state and i was like oh this is the way to go and then i was just about to like actually do the thing and they went under i knew it this is only for rich people or military guys like that that's it. I'm done. And so the idea sat simmering for like eight, eight more years. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Eight like, years. Eight years, yeah, man. That's crazy. It scared me off. I was like, oh, this is a pyramid scheme, man. I'm, I'm not doing it. <laughs> what sparked you saying, okay, this is, it's time again to get this going? Well, I, I mean, it, it's always been in the back of my head. I, it's, it's, it's the coolest job ever, right? And uh, I guess I contacted a bunch of people, just random individuals that I had found email addresses for on, on various websites. I think I ended up sending out like 25 emails. It was basically like, Hey, I'm, I'm about ready to pull the trigger. I want to go to school. Like, tell me, you know, where I should go. This is the right time. Or if it's the wrong time, you know, uh, we've, we've seen the industry sort of expand and contract and you know, there's definitely a good time and a real bad time to get started and, and get your first job. And so I got three or four uh, answers and, um, you know, it was overwhelmingly like go to a bigger school and it was either Florida or, or Oregon. And I'm not going to Florida. So here I am in Oregon. <laughs> so I solicited a bunch of advice and, and kind of went with it. Got some direction. I mean, Hillsboro is a great place to train because you deal with weather. I mean, okay, there's like pros and cons, right? Because if you fly somewhere where you have to deal with weather, then you have to deal with weather. And you might not be able to get done as fast <laughs> as you would somewhere like Florida or Southern California where you have you know good weather all year round. So, sure. I mean... Well, we have the Santa Ana winds for a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yeah. Real, real, man. <laughs> Those winds, man. <laughs> Those winds. I mean, fire, smoke. You know, we get some bad visibility during there. There's nowhere near. There's no. There's nowhere. Nowhere near as close as you and me go. I, I can say that. Yeah, well, but it never gets. You know, I mean, it it it'll freeze higher up, but I mean, here on the coast, like, oh, people freak out. It snows like once or twice a year here, and it's like, oh my god, lock the doors, <laughs> stay inside, <laughs> cancel school. So after you became a pilot, so you went to school, did you get your CFI? Did you go that direction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That, you know, that seemed like the formula everybody was following. Um, I remember a couple of guys that were, you know, I'm not going to be an instructor. I'm I'm like, I'm ready to go. I'm like, how how do you do that? I didn't Mm -hmm. even know that that was a thing other than like boat picks, you know? Yeah, no, no. (laughs) Um, Stay away. (laughs) uh, So... Yeah, I, I understood I had to be a um, an instructor, and and I was I was psyched about that. You know? um, even still looking back, I mean that's some of the most fun flying. 
right? You get to, you get to make it up every day, choose what you mm-hmm. want to do. You know, mm-hmm. now we have to go where we're supposed to go. And <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You were a great instructor. Yeah. I remember, I mean, you weren't my oh, instructor, jokes. but when we were at Papillon and you'd take us out, you know, to do training and I think you did all my A-star training and uh, yeah, no, you were a fantastic instructor. You were really, really good. Well, you were a, a very good student. Diane. We were lucky <laughs> right. to have all that territory. I mean, it, it's all BLM land, like mm-hmm. do whatever you want, go where you please. There's very few places we couldn't go. And, and it was fun. You know, you could really explore and, and, and find new places to go and scare your students. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> no, that wasn't you. That was, that was all me. Uh, it wasn't you. It was me. <laughs> no, I just remember you being very, a very good instructor and being really impressed. And it was really cool having you as a lead pilot because I don't know, I always just felt like you were able to, to toe that line between being a good leader in the, at the company and also being a good friend. That's what I always really liked about you. So you were very well liked and very well respected at Papillon. I remember I that very clearly. It's a hard line. It's a hard line to walk. I've known a lot of people who are in positions of leadership and they just don't know that, you know, how to not have to demand respect from people. And you know, that's a, that's a very hard thing to do. So I applaud if you. have you. to demand it, you already failed. You already failed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's hard to be well, a lead pilot and like hang out with the crew at the same time also, because you have to, you know, be in that position of being a leader and, you know, keeping that respect and not like completely mingling with the commoners. But I feel, <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah. I, but I feel like you did a really good job at, being in that position and still being a really good friend and you never lost that leadership ability. So bravo. Well, thanks. I'm glad that I don't have the leadership responsibility anymore. <laughs> regular old line pilot now. It's awesome. <laughs> so af- after Papillon, where did you go? I mean, I know, but tell everyone else. To, <laughs> so, you know, in hindsight, man, the lead pilot job at Papillon is great. It's so sweet. I, was lured away down the ramp to father to be their chief pilot, uh, which in hindsight, maybe not the best choice. Uh, it was a, a ton more work, not really much more fun. Um, you know, flying the line rather than doing a bunch of instruction flights uh, is also a lot less. And yeah. uh, so it didn't last that long. I started scoping out other jobs. Um, Falk and Eric had just um, come up here. My friend Joe Dennis had come up here uh, a few years earlier. And so I, I was, how did you guys get that job? Like that's supposed to be, you know, your retirement job. This, this bar pilot thing, I figured, man, you got a, a ton of experience. I have far time. They're hoisting like, no way I'm applying just in case. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it worked out. It, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know they 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 don't pay much, so uh, they don't they can't get um, people with tons and tons of of experience like I would have expected. Um, the job doesn't pay; it's really no better than EMS. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's why they're not getting getting folks with uh, tons of instrument time and hoisting time and 
you know, see. That's yeah, what yeah, I expected. Yeah. Is it a private company or is it a government-run agency that you work for? Yeah, it's a it's a private company. So Brim Brim Aviation is based in um, Ashland, and it's a utility operator. We've okay. got a bunch of uh, mostly MDs, a couple nine hundred twos, and a whole bunch of five uh, hundreds, and and they're operating doing power line stuff, and uh, you know all over the country. And then you know completely separate to all of that is just this Astoria operation where we uh, fly the bar pilots on and off. And, you know, the, it, it really seems like a separate company, you know, somebody from the head office will come by once every year or so. We talk to them on the phone sometimes, but we're really our own, our own little independent operation. I bet that feels nice. Right. Yeah. Feel like your yeah, own like, little entity. Yeah. It's, it's a really good group of people. You know, it's uh, a, yeah. what do we have? Uh, eight pilots, maybe nine pilots and, uh, seven, seven or eight mechanics right now. I haven't done a very good job introduce what, what the whole, uh, mission is for us. Um, it, it's also confusing because they're called pilots. The bar, right, pilots, bar pilots are the ship's captains, mm-hmm. right? All right. So the, these, these captains have to be put on uh, and taken off ships. So every, every ship that comes in, uh, into the river over the bar has to have a bar pilot, um, basically steering the ship, taking control from the captain and, and, and ensuring safe passage across this most treacherous uh, piece of <clears throat> And then once they get into town, um, a, a boat will, will um, deliver the river pilot who then continues to take it up to Portland or wherever else the bar pilot gets off. Likewise, on the way outbound, these ships will get their pilots you know, in town and then take it over the bar and then we'll go pick them up. Now, there are two pilot boats that have been doing this job for 147 years, something it's, it's the oldest business in Oregon at the bar pilot. I think it was about 20 years ago that um, this helicopter program uh, began. And so, you know, now, um, you know, these guys tend to use the helicopter a little bit more just cause it's, it's a 20 minute deal. Whereas the boat takes a couple hours um, but the boat has to be, that's the backup plan, right? If we can't get out there, if we can't launch for weather, if it's too rough, we can't get them on. There are some ships that come in where there's no spot to go. You know, uh, um, sometimes there'll be like windmill blades, uh, on, on deck and you just, there's, there's not a, a good spot to, uh, to drop them off. And in that mm-hmm. case, they've got to, they got to take the boat. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, cool. that's kind of like the that, make, the that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, no, man, that makes a lot of sense because I was under the impression that like, yeah, I don't know why I thought you were like long lining them. I didn't, I didn't think there was a hoist operator on there. Yeah, you know? yeah. So our hoist operators are also um, our mechanics. So mm-hmm. those guys do double duty, fixing the ship, and then and then also um, uh, operating the hoist. Are they also like uh, rescue swim divers? <laughs> no, no, yeah. <laughs> no. We don't. Uh, we don't do any any rescue work. We leave that to the coast guard. <laughs> yeah. So it's a pretty small bunch. How does the shift work then? Like a twelve and twelve, or like a twelve hours off, uh, twelve hours off type deal? Yeah. Yep. Twelve yeah. on, twelve off, and it's a seven and seven a weekly schedule. That ain't bad, man. That's pretty good. Yeah, and do you have absolutely. to switch days and nights all the time, or do you have to do it like EMS, where you do like four days? And three nights or something or do you work all days one week and all nights the next week well when when you first start off um you're a, an sic at night 
And that's all you can do for a while. And it takes six <clears> months <throat> or a year till you start, you know, doing your day PIC training. And it takes, it takes a while. I mean, another year or so, and you're uh, working days on your own as a PIC. And then like what I'm going through right now is my night PIC training. So I've been working nights for a few months. I'll probably be working nights for another, I don't know, year or two. And then ideally once, once we have a crew that's mostly trained up, um, then sure we'll be able to swap. Uh, days oh, gotcha. But yeah, there's been, you know, historically there's been quite a bit of turnover. And so we often don't have a full group of, of night PIC pilots. Yeah. Sometimes we only have two or three. <laughs> no joke. But we, it's a pretty stable situation right now. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, that um, the, the crew that we have is, is going to stay this way for some time. Oh, wow. so, so we yeah, can all yeah, be yeah. PIC qualified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I remember, and we, I know we've talked about this before, but that's where I was stationed when I was in the Coast Guard, was up there at, yeah, the, that's at right. Cape Disappointment, Columbia River yeah, Bar, right. Astoria, Oregon. And I'll tell you what, that is some of the densest fog I've ever <laughs> experienced. I mean, we'd be out on the boat and we couldn't see two feet in front of the bow of the boat. The Sometimes bow. we couldn't yeah. even see the bow of the boat because the, th- the fog would be so thick. So... Uh, how many days out of the year would you say are actually flyable for you guys? Do you go out in IFR or are you just VFR all the time? Or yeah, yeah, we're a we're an IFR program, so our our minimums for the day is uh, one mile and three hundred feet, which is pretty low, Ooh. and at night three miles and seven hundred feet, and uh, you know it's at the airport. Um, but once we're once we're out of our class echo airspace. Um, we, we fly IFR, but we don't talk to anybody. We have, uh, this special little op spec that lets us fly. It, it, it's, it's stated IFR class golf, but it's technically just IMC, right? Cause we're not really following any rules or talking to anybody. So we punch into the clouds and we'll go down to 300 feet, rip it along at 140 knots. And then, uh, we find the ship on, on radar and to it, and we slow down. Once we can see something, ship's lights, some water beneath us, anything, then we'll come down to 200 feet. And then, you know, our radar is only good for up until, you know, a mile or two. So then you set your, your heading and then wait. And hopefully, out from the mist appears. Appears. Yeah, out colossal of here. Wow. Cargo ships. Yeah, and, that is crazy. And, that sounds so yeah. intense. <laughs> well, All I, I can think of the radar going pinging. I, I was really, I think when I got the job, I was really expecting that the IFR piece was going to be, that was going to be like the, the intense part, you know, and it, it certainly is, but you know, you sort of get used to it. And again, we don't have a great deal of variety, like the challenge of going through to a different city, to a new airspace, to a different, you know, we're, we're making these approaches to ships all day, every day. And so that, that weather gets comfortable pretty quick. The only exciting part is the hoist itself. <laughs> I'm sure. A real live human on the line when the ship is moving violently next to you with nothing else to look at, but the moving ship is uh, intense. So, so disorienting. Uh, but it's only for a few seconds. Then I go back and sit in my lazy boy and cook <laughs> some tasty food. And, and um, it's hours again before my sheer terror for several seconds. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So what? 
so are these like point in space approaches that you're doing to these ships? Is that what they're called? Uh, it's or not. It's a, just like no. It's not a published. We no, don't nothing. have like a, an offshore letdown. It's not like the Gulf. Um, we just we just take care of our own navigation okay. and uh, fly out there uh, on our own. Crazy. Yeah. So I mean, the waves yeah, well, get so big out there. I couldn't imagine yeah, yeah. hoisting and lowering hoisting a a human <laughs> alive, a real life human. <laughs> <laughs> With these boats rocking like that, I mean, do you guys have a limitation for how big the waves can be when you guys are actually going out there to do these missions? No, we don't have a we don't have a limitation. At a certain point, the bar pilots will close the bar. Sometimes twenty to twenty five feet is is a typical um, you know significant wave height to shut things down. But it, it depends on the ship. Um, sometimes we'll have uh, very small ships skinnier ships that, uh, especially tankers tend to move a ton and in 10 or 12 feet, that can be almost impossible. It can be a nightmare. And then, you know, you get a big container ship or, a, um, uh, Panamax, these big wide ships with no cranes, nothing to run into 20 feet, 30 feet. It, you know, it's, it, that's all doable. Um, yeah. Hey Mike, mm-hmm. when, um, when you're flying dude and you like long lining the captains and stuff, was there like, Ever a moment where you thought about jettisoning him, <laughs> like like putting him in the water or anything like that, or mm, or were you um, just like just pull up until you get above the cloud layer? Let's see, let's see. So we first of all we, we hoist them. It's not not long line, just just to make sure that nobody gets the wrong idea. They're, oh, they're hoisted bad. down, so we we winch them yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. And um, we've definitely had to abort uh, a number of hoists. It's not at all uncommon to uh lose track of the role put a wrong input in you know you can imagine as soon as they start swinging that you, you know we can call abort the hoist operator will call abort we'll move away and try and get stable um you know they can hoist them up and then you know hoist them back down and cancel some of that that movement um so we abort a lot of hoists um oh, gotcha. there there have been uh a couple of events that um i can think of where Hoist cable's been cut. Um, I was my first winter. I was a um, in the left seat. I was the SIC on a hoist where um, you know we ended up moving out of position, and the hoist operator uh, couldn't maintain visual with the um, with the bar pilot, and you know he was still on deck, um, but he couldn't see him, and so he ended up having to um, to cut the cable. Yeah. So he was fine. He was on deck. He just had to. Pulling the hoist cable and we call the boat. <laughs> no, yeah. no, man, that's that's pretty crazy, dude. I can't imagine like what you said, how the ships go like moving up and down, like with the current, you know, twenty <laughs> foot waves and stuff, and having a having to be so precise and putting them on deck, you know, without getting anybody hurt. Um, yeah, that's got. Yeah, there's crazy. a method, and it, it's a ton of training. I mean, we're, we go through like years of training just to finally get you know cut loose all the way. Yeah. Um, it's such a weird, specific little specialty, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the drama is always just, you know, when, when the ship's moving a ton, it's an intimidating prospect. What's the hard part? The hard part is, particularly at night, your entire frame of reference is a moving ship. It becomes difficult to know if the helicopter's moving or it's just everything around you. We fly with forced trims, right? So we'll make our approach, put into hover mode, and then make small adjustments. And, you know, there's a little button on the cycle. Mm-hmm. 
to mm-hmm. move, to make the adjustment. You guys, mm-hmm. that's all about. And so the big challenge is just to stay off the button. Just <laughs> let it ride. Just let it go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you, if you set a, a, a slow and steady course on the way into the ship, you should be able to make small adjustments. And then, but it's, I don't know, it's such a head game. I mean, sure. I haven't done a whole lot of uh, long line flying. I, I think I got eight or 10 hours while I was at Hillsboro. And yeah. uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with hoisting. I feel like, um, there's, it, it's like a skill, you know, like a physical skill. Like it's, it's something you could get good at like a video game. Right. And hoisting, it, it's, it's just like a, it's just a head game. You know, it's, it's how to choose the few references that aren't lying to you and ignore everything else that you see and resist the urge to push the resist button. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and you, you know, when you screw it up right away, you know, it's like, Oh, the nose pitches up. Oh, I must be moving forward. Uh, oh, oh, I fucked it up. Abort. Oh, <laughs> that is so disorienting. I don't know if I would like that. I don't know if I'd like that. It's like when you're sitting in your car and the, and the car next to you starts backing away and you think your car's moving and you're like, whoa, <laughs> does that yeah. ever happen to yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but that's like, that's, yeah. that's really disorienting and a very impressive skill once you get it down. So that's awesome that there's someone out there like you who wants to do it and not me. <laughs> not me. <laughs> well, I, I think anybody can do it. it like, I'm sure. It just, takes, it just takes a lot of time. Pra- it just takes practice to, to get that, I'm sure. When I first started flying the 109, it was hard to stay off the button. And we, we talked about this. We recorded a little bit of an intro before we got on here, but getting that immediate you know, satisfaction of, you know, I don't know, going from flying an A-star, for example. You know, I keep the friction all the way off. You know, I like... You know, I like me a loose cyclic, but you know, when you have that, when you have that, when you have that stabilization on there, it definitely took me a minute to like not hold it down the whole time and try to fly it like an A-star. You know, you have to kind of like be patient with it and trust like, okay, all I have to do is like set it and let go. And right, it'll, it'll right. fly. It'll take care of itself. <laughs> you know, like uh, yep. it definitely took some getting used to. There was one time yep. uh, taxing. Uh, I don't know. The tower was doing something weird. They were like having us actually ground taxi across the runway. And so (laughs) they cleared me across the runway, but I was accidentally triggering the, and I wasn't used to the SAS button yet and I was holding it down, but apparently I was also holding down the trigger for the microphone. (laughs) Um, and (laughs) (laughs) they cleared me across the road i'm like cleared across runway one six left or something and i was and i I just go like as i'm going across across the runway not realizing that i was still holding down because when you're ground taxiing with the 109 you have to hold down the sas button or turn the sasses off and I was squeezing it together with the mic key um, and made a complete fool out of myself on the radio. And they were like, stuck mic, stuck mic. I'm like, that wasn't a stuck mic. That was just me being a complete moron. <laughs> Gripping it. Gripping it. it was, yep. Yeah, that was. That's funny. I find the 109 for like uh, when I was doing my training for about like a month. And then um, I had to go back into the A-Star. One of the instructor pilots was with me. And I kept pushing uh, the force trim button on the, it was on the A-star. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm, like, I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing? What am yeah. I doing? And then, and then I was like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> <laughs> does not do anything. <laughs> this button doesn't do squat. It shoots the missiles. 
I was like, um, I flew the S76 the other day and um, I got to fly it. And um, it has like a, well, you know, it's automated and it has like all the things like it has like the flight director and stuff like that on there. And we had to go to Mm -hmm. Palm Springs. And I will say, man, I do like having it automated. Just like Mm -hmm. hit a couple buttons, pop, 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 go to my altitude and just talk to approach and be like, hey, man, I'm coming into Palm Springs. That's it. <laughs> <Maybe. Hey. laughs> uh, that's hilarious. But, <laughs> and yeah. that's it. And that's it. I'm oh, coming. Yeah. Make way. <laughs> Part Make way. the seas. <laughs> 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 How uh Diane, yeah. when you were out there doing your swim training, like what what were the worst seas that you saw there? Um, I mean, in the wintertime, we could get up to 40 foot breaking surf just in certain areas. Do you know the names yeah. of the areas like Clatsop Spit and Peacock Spit? Sure. Like those areas, they could get pretty freaking high. But I never did any swimming when I was out there. I, my, I just worked on the 47 foot motor lifeboats. Right, right. Um, I mean, we had to test out our dry suits once in a while where we'd have to jump in the water to check for leaks. And no, yeah. no, no, <laughs> well, that, there were no waves, but that was cold. <laughs> Called. Okay. Definitely those things. I cannot imagine being in a small boat. I mean, just looking down at, at uh, how fierce that is the bar. Well, talking about... How to be in a helicopter? <laughs> talking about where I got some of my inspiration to become a helicopter pilot was the same as you, where I was like, I am freezing my butt off down here, miserable. <laughs> and just, here comes the MH-65s. We'll just like, or a Jayhawk will you know, pass by us overhead after we've been out there freezing our butts off for three hours. They're like, got it from here, guys. (laughs) Dang you, getting all the glory, you know? Um, And we're we're just down there like, oh my gosh, you know, and we'd finally get to the boat and they've already been on scene for however long doing their thing and saving the day. And uh, (laughs) I'm like, man, you know what? I don't want to be down here. I want to be up there. So no, that was, um, that was a very intense place to work. It was we never rolled completely, but we came pretty close a couple times. And I think the scariest part was at nighttime because sometimes, you know, in the bar, the waves wouldn't come from just one direction. They'd be coming from all different directions. So we'd have to station ourselves on different parts of the boat and yell out to the coxswain, you know, 20 port, 30 starboard, and like let them know where the waves are coming from at approximate heights that we'd kind of have to guess so that they could maneuver the boat so we wouldn't flip. But, you know, these boats have the ability to roll and rewrite themselves. So we have to be strapped in with harnesses that we, you know, every time you take a step, you have to unclip and clip in, unclip, clip in, you know, kind of a situation so that if we did roll, we're not going to fall out of the boat. We're, you know, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be fun. You know, people break arms, legs, the mast will snap in half if that happens, but you're not going to die because it'll rewrite itself. So it was never like... We never rolled completely, but yeah, there was one time at night we got picked up from a wave, like with, by a wave from the back. So like we kind of got sucked up, you know, uh, and almost went butt overhead to the point where we were holding onto the stanchions. And our legs were just dangling in the air, just like looking into a black oh. abyss of water. And then yeah. the nose just sort of skipped. It just like, I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain on talking about it, but... Basically, the bow just sort of like skipped along the water as we were getting pushed by this wave. And eventually, we kind of just came back over it. But 
Yeah, that was one of the scariest moments of my life, holding on to that stanchion, just looking down into the black water. Like, that's not going to be fun (laughs) if this happens. Um, I think I would have got in trouble on purpose and, like, just cleaned latrines for the next two years. (laughs) 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 And there there was sometimes we'd be rocking back. and So we would have to stand on the outside. We wouldn't be able to be inside the boat because we have to be able to see. And we'd have to stand on the on the top open bridge, which was about 30 feet. And we would have waves literally that would be over our heads in height from where we were standing. So sometimes we'd be rocking side to side so hard that our faces would be dragged in the water as we were leaning. That's like that's how far we would lean over. Like, I mean, I wasn't a pilot yet, so I couldn't appreciate what the weather was like there in regards to Mm. flying. But I mean, looking back on it, I can't even imagine the kind of conditions that you guys are flying in. Does the Coast Guard pilots like see you guys launch and go like, where the hell are they going? And then they just see you go into the abyss. (laughs) No, we, you know, we talk on the radio quite a bit. There's a ton of um, Coast Guard operations. You know, they, they are flying. I think that they have two operational here all the time. And they may have a couple more stashed in the hangout. I don't know exactly, but they are all flying. Um, oh, really? There's lots of training that goes on here. They do auto rotation training in those Jayhawks like all day, every day. It's 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 wild. Um, yeah, that's cool. And, and and we see them operating off- offshore, either training or uh, there's a lot of active rescues that go on up and down mm-hmm. the coast. I mean, these guys uh, have a pretty big uh, range. They go way inland. I mean, they, they'll they'll do rescues up in the mountains. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know all the way down to Facebook and and up uh, up all the way to the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Oh yeah, Juan de Fuca. What you what you call me? <laughs> Did I say that right? I'm not sure. I think that's so, a word that I've like read, but maybe I've never. Heard no, it. I think that that sounds right. You know, when I um, I had to had to do a watchstander job, which basically was like being a dispatcher, where we had to decide whether or not a mayday call was a, a switch flipper whether if we needed to sound the alarm and wake everybody up to, to get out there or if it was, uh, you know, calling someone, Hey guys, we have a boat. They're way offshore. They're not in any real danger, but they ran out of gas so we can take our time with it. But, um, usually in Cape D, if it was something in the immediate vicinity of the bar, it was always a switch flipper because if someone ran out of gas and they could get thrown up against the rocks, the jetties, I mean, it, it was just a nightmare in there for anybody having any boat problems. But yeah, we got launched quite a bit, but I remember having to memorize the area of operation that we were responsible for, and we had to know every little point along, you know, we were 20 miles up river, and then I think 20 miles up and down the shoreline, and we had to be able to, if a boat was coming through saying, you know, uh, I don't know where we are exactly, our GPS is down, but I see a rock and it looks like a big thumb. You know, we have we have to be like, oh, that's, right. you know, thumb in, yeah, thumb rock. Oh, <laughs> thumb rock. I know exactly where to send our guys. <laughs> it was hilarious. Well, we listened to the radio all night. You know, we, we got to listen to to one, six, nine and, and one, three. And so, you know, we hear, you know, and there are many calls on a surprisingly frequent basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're often kind of funny. I mean, I should <laughs> say they're funny. Yeah, right. They they're, are they're funny. Kind of funny nah, nah, nah. Right. What's uh, the funniest one you've heard? There's one, there's one guy that sounded like the dude from the Lebowski. And, no way. Uh, yeah. He was, he was offshore. They were taking on water. The engine quit. He had, <laughs> so, you know, he, he, he made his mayday call and 
you know, the reply, you know, you, you got a list to read. I, I don't know what comes first. Like, what's your location? Does everybody have a flotation device? Is, mm-hmm. is, is there, you know, uh, and he's just like, hey, man, I, I'm sick of answering questions here, man. You guys going to come <laughs> give me one, man? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're cracking up. And, and so, and so she's just like, how many people on board? Do they have PFD? She just like went right back into the, the spiel. It was so funny. Oh my god, that's, that's hilarious, dude. That's funny. You have to take every call seriously until they're proven otherwise. And sometimes we'd get calls that were definitely just you knew they were not anything, but you still had to respond as such. And we, <laughs> I was standing watching. I uh, heard over the radio over 16, somebody get Chuck Norris. I'm like, what? And then they said it again. Somebody help Chuck Norris. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Vessel Chuck Norris. Are you in need of assistance? And they just came over and goes, Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris. And like over and over again. And it was so funny because I I think that, you know, Coast Guard was out there. We were doing training with the helos somewhere and they went over all the boats that they could find and go, do you have any kids on board? Can you have them say Chuck Norris into the radio? So I (laughs) for the next hour, we would just have little Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris, like over channel 16, trying to find out like what this boat. Yeah, it was the most ridiculous thing. But enough of all that. Let's get back to your story. Is this yeah. where you imagine that your career would be or what you would be doing? Did you have any <laughs> concept or um, is this yeah, something? I, that- I was, I, yeah, I was aware of this job, um, you know, since the beginning, you know, from Hillsborough, we would fly on cross country coast here and land. I remember being, I was terrified the first time I got to a story because it was 30 knots and like, you know, <laughs> you know, you have wind limitations as a private pilot. Right. And mm-hmm. this is above my wind limitations, but you know, you got to get gas. And it was 39, like perfect laminar wind. It just landed right into the wind. It was like, oh, oh. <laughs> it was like definitely no big deal. <laughs> but, you know, when you're a private pilot, man. It, yeah, 30 knots is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, Especially in a so, Robbie. Man, yeah. is that what you trained in, Robinsons? I mean, I guess, yes. yeah, yeah, Hillsborough. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, yep. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, the wind would, would really get kicking out there. But at least it's, you know, onshore or offshore winds. So I guess they could Usually, be yeah. pretty predictable. I, you know, there's not much. The only thing that can make turbulence is the ship, you know, once we're out there. So mm-hmm. um, we can work with that to a certain extent. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, the 109, how does it operate out there in that that environment? You know, do you get uh, well? It's, it's uniquely suited to this, which is surprising because, I don't know, I would think it's just for, you know, VIPs or, or maybe EMS. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is, it's uniquely well suited. It's got a, um, a very capable autopilot. It's a, with a fourth axis, you have hover mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a ton of tail rotor authority. It, uh, you know, it's, it's got this big, long tail and, you know, the, the, the tail rotor blades are like these huge paddles they're like they're just meaty and mm-hmm. uh and you know we fly we'll, we'll even hoist in, in very high winds um you know technically our limit is 50 knots and you know mm-hmm. we always stay in that in that in that range yeah yeah um, okay. but you know the the, the 109s it's 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 good for that um 
everything you've heard about Leonardo is true. Uh, it is very difficult to work with that company. The support is uh, laughable. Um, it it's you know it's an it's a Ferrari. You know it's bright yellow and it breaks when you look at it the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> our, our mechanics just like are, most Italians, are you know, the best in the, in the world, man. <laughs> These guys do an extraordinary job of of. Um, shooting finding these mysterious electric gremlins i was about to say there's a hundred thousand miles of wire in there yeah question because you know when i was flying the 109 we would always if it rained even just a little bit oh yeah i mean we'd get warning lights that would be thrown you know you would you would just expect that you'd get an engine fire light or a chip light or something weird on your flight the day after it rained if we didn't put them in the hangar or have any have any cover on them, and it rains a lot out where you are. So, do you just get like warning lights getting thrown all the time, or you know, uh, our our guys have found solutions to a lot of that stuff, and uh, are there are you know ways to add some potting here or some insulation there, or you know, they've they've managed to um, basically you know marinize the, the helicopter you know it's uh are a ton of processes that that you know it goes just our unique aircraft to, mm-hmm. to sort of prevent that kind of thing oh man they should uh, share it with the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah uh, we, we have the highest time 109 sp we're at almost six thousand hours and it's it's going to get replaced we got a new one on order um it's coming in september cool. uh and you know when you call the tech rep for help it, we just any help they call us though when another 109 sp is having an autopilot problem because we've had all the problems we've got this old aircraft (laughs) (laughs) so uh it's it's kind of not that cool when the factory's got to call your mechanic to learn about their problems yeah Huh. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think about this have you ever experienced it <laughs> and, and and you know the support is it, it, it's a problem and and our customer the bar pilots are of us being down just waiting for parts like sure. i mean <laughs> have you guys the, thought uh, about changing it up like picking a different yeah, platform definitely and everybody's been kind of eager to explore those options and uh, it's it's a hard sell you know the the 145 is too expensive and the 135 is just not big enough. Um, and the 429 has got a shitty autopilot. doesn't have hover mode. Um, and I guess the, the Canadian code uh, is suing Bell because they bought all these, these 429s with the expectation that they would be able to hoist with hover mode. And that was like five, six years ago. Still can't hoist with hover mode. So, huh. um, yeah, there's there's not a ton there's not a ton of options. There's options out yeah. there. Hmm. I was voting for the uh, Augusta Westland six oh nine. Doesn't sound like that's gonna be an option for us. Oh yeah. <laughs> just get a couple <laughs> just get a couple hawks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right. Well we we hoist differently. So uh the, the Jayhawk man, these guys are hoist experts. They do tons of that work, but they do it differently. They're way, way, way up above the ship. They use a tagline, so it's a, a static hoist, um, and it takes a while, you know. Mm. Um, we we don't. We get in very close. We can be 10 or 20 feet up above the deck, and it's a dynamic hoist. So we go in, put them on. And it, it should be a, a five-second event. You know, it's pretty quick. Okay. So a bigger helicopter, like a like an old 212 or something like that, 
it still wouldn't work. Wouldn't we, work. We, it, it'd be, you know, there was too much downwash. Um, yeah. And we'd have to be higher. The, the higher you are, the more difficult the, the visual references, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, wow. yeah. That's it's so dynamic. It's a small, small pool of, of options for airframes. That's a definitely niche, dude. You know, like it's a very specialty thing you guys are working with. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That 145 would be nice though, but you're right. Yeah. Um, it is expensive. That's what I'm trying to sell my bosses. I'm like, we should oh, just yeah. sell it all and just get the, <laughs> just get the 145. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, let's start some crowdfunding for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We started a GoFundMe, <laughs> GoFundMe, Go Oregon. Um, <laughs> I don't know how the bar pilots would feel about that. Right on, man. Well, so oh. cool, and I that was it's so cool and interesting to hear um, to hear your story and what you do up there. Because I mean, I had an idea, but yeah, it's cool to do a little bit of a deep dive into your operations and how you guys do those missions. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. On a I side mean, note, we don't go upside down. I'm no jet pilot. It's not that <laughs> interesting. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's something that's d- so niche and different that it's so it's cool to share something like that on the podcast because not a lot of people do it. I mean, there's eight of you sure. in the whole wide world that do this mission well, in that specific area. There, so There's a few I, other helicopter um, pilot, like Harbor pilot operations. There's one in Norway, one in South Africa. Um, I think there's one in Australia. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's not super common. And, yeah. and sometimes they always land on deck. Like in Australia, I think their primary plan is land on deck. Mm-hmm. We only do that when it's like a lake out there. It's gotta be mm-hmm. sweet conditions. So Yeah, but that's what I mean. <laughs> it's a very unique area and very specific to what you guys do with the yeah. weather and the way that the ocean is out there. So I'd say the sure. most of the fixing pilots that I know, I would say 70 to 80% probably never get in a helicopter. And the ones that would would probably never go special VFR anywhere. Lift up, it's IMC. And then they're like, yeah, let me get special VFR to the north. And they're like, what? what? <laughs> like, where, where's this guy going? Special you know, VFR. Like, <laughs> VFR? <laughs> but That's yeah, nice. it was just funny. I would say most of them <laughs> like are like, no, they honestly do think we're cowboys. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're not yeah. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, yeah. I fly like a grandma. <laughs> Compared to yeah, it. me too, man. I like you know, even if I'm not a cowboy at all ever, it's still risky. It's exciting enough. It's, I, yeah. I don't need to add any Mm-mm. excitement to, nope. to this. Like, um, yeah, <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> no cowboy required. No, nope. no cowboy certificate required. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear that. Thank you so much for coming on the show and spending your Thanksgiving with us and have a beautiful Thanksgiving with your family and going over to your friend's place. Uh, it was really awesome talk. Oh, hi. Oh hey, my gosh. What's up? Is that Quentin? Does your boy have a mullet? I can't tell. <laughs> that's my video. Oh. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Sick. Sick, dude. I like your haircut. <laughs> no, sometimes it's well, pretty good. You guys dope. should come up here. One of these days, you should uh, book yourself a ticket and come up here. Oh my we, gosh, uh, yes. That's, that's happening, It's dude. such a beautiful yeah. area, and Astoria is a really cool little town. Man, Mikey T, I love that guy. 
Yeah, super cool dude. Like, yeah, I miss him. Whole Pat crew. It's cool to right? hear his job. What a niche little part of the helicopter industry. It's really neat to be able to share his experience and um, right. Yeah, really, not a lot really of people cool. know what he does, or well, hell, I didn't really know too much of what he did. Yeah, me you know, neither. I just, knew that, I just knew that he flew out and you know took captains out to boats and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more involved than that. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> It is time for a little ground lesson. Let's go. All right, all right, you guys. First and foremost, I want to apologize for my voice. I'm a little hoarse right now. I just spent the last week ferrying an R66 from Puerto Rico up here to Atlanta. It was my first international helicopter adventure. So I just wanted to share the information that I learned about leaving the U.S. and returning to the U.S. and traveling internationally, just a couple of tips and things that I picked up on this trip, and it's all really fresh right now, so I just want to get it down for you guys. If you're planning on ever taking an international trip to and from the U.S., especially in the Caribbean, because that's the only experience that I have thus far in a helicopter or in an airplane, this all applies to either one. Take notes. I had originally started this ground lesson before I left, utilizing the AOPA's cross-border flying PDF that you can find online. You can just Google it, AOPA cross-border flying. They have a really good checklist on there, but there was a couple of things that I wanted to add from things that I learned along the way. So first and foremost, you want to make sure you verify all of your documents. You have everything in order for you as the pilot and for the aircraft that you are going to be flying. So if you're ferrying someone else's aircraft or if you're flying your own, you need to make sure that it has all of the required documents on board. I know we've already done a lesson on the required documents that you need to have on board, but just as a reminder, you need arrow and now we're going to add a customs decal, a CBP decal. So you need to go to their website and see how you can apply for one for the aircraft. For you as the pilot, along with all of your other flight certificates, you're also going to need a radio license, which you can get from the FAA for pretty cheap. It's very quick, very easy. Do your research on the country that you're going to be going to in regards to their COVID policies. Some of them require a documentation of your vaccination records, or of a COVID test within a certain time period before you're going to be arriving in the country. And a lot of them have electronic documents you need to fill out online and get approved prior to your arrival, sort of like a health visa. Now, I only went to countries in the Caribbean, so this is the only thing that I can speak on. I haven't traveled any farther than that. But no matter what, you need to enter into an airport of entry for the country that you're going to. So do some research, figure out which ones those are, call the FBOs in advance, let them know that you're going to be arriving. And uh, Customs is going to know that you're going to be arriving as well through the FBO. So there were some airports where we were approached by Customs on the ramp before we even had shut down. And there were some that were a little bit more laid back where we just went into the FBO and they assisted us with all of the Customs forms that we needed to fill out. But at no time was there any real struggle with customs. Uh, everybody was super friendly and um, courteous. We had no issues whatsoever. And lastly, once you arrive, make sure you close your flight plan. It is required in the Caribbean to 
open a flight plan between countries, uh, not necessarily if you're flying intra-country, but some places like the Bahamas have cruising permits that you need to fill out and pay for in order to go intra-country to different islands. So that is something to be aware of, but customs will let you guys know all of that stuff when you get there. The AOPA uh, flying guides are a really good tool. If you go to their website, you can purchase those there. And it has all of this information on there, but you can also just find all this stuff online. It's really not that hard. When you're returning back to the United States, again, you need to pick an airport of entry. So look up which airports are AOEs and read about their times of operation because maybe the office is going to be closed when you are planning to arrive. So that's also very important. And again, to return to the U.S., you need to fill out the EAPIS form online, just one per aircraft. All of the crew and passengers will all go on the same document. You will get your confirmation email that lets you know that you have permission to arrive and you have landing rights. You will need to file a DVFR or IFR flight plan to enter the ADIS. If you think you're going to be later than 15 minutes or earlier than 15 minutes at your arrival time that you have on your paperwork, or if you think that you're going to enter at a different point of entry to the ADIS more than five miles from what you filed, make sure you let them know as soon as humanly possible of the changes. Customs also wants you to call them at least one hour, but no earlier than 23 hours before your planned time of arrival. They're super nice. You'll talk to them on the phone. They just want to verify a couple things. And something to keep um, that kind of caught us off guard was that when they were verifying the information over the phone, they were saying their initials after everything we said as sort of a verbal initial saying that they are confirming. So that was something that I didn't realize that they did and was kind of like weird, really. Why do you keep saying JS? <laughs> like, oh, JS are your initials. Didn't Had no idea that that's something that customs did, but just something to know. When you get to your airport of entry, go directly to the customs ramp. There are places that you can get fuel at the customs ramp as well, but do not land at an FBO before you go to customs. They can hit you with a ten dollars to $20,000 fine and you really don't want that to happen. When you arrive at the customs ramp, it's very straightforward. Someone comes out to the aircraft, they do a quick aircraft like walk around, they're actually checking for radiation, which was something else I didn't know that they did. So they have like a radiation detector that they're going around the aircraft with. And then you'll bring all of your baggage inside. They'll put it through the scanner, just like you're arriving at the at a normal airport and bada bing, bada boom, they send you on your way. Welcome back to America. I hope some of this information helped. I have no idea if any of you guys are planning on flying out of or to the U.S., but this was uh, something that I learned, some new experience that I can share with you guys. So I hope that this was interesting and helpful. And make sure you like, subscribe, leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Have a beautiful, beautiful day, you guys. Fly safe out there. Fly smart. And we'll catch you next time on the Forever on the Fly podcast. Bye. Bye.